This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm happy to say this video was brought to you by Second Sale. Second Sale is more or less an online thrift store for books, with most starting at just $3.78 with over 10 million titles to choose from, anyone can find what they're looking for. If I can make a couple suggestions, there are hundreds of true crime novels like Evil Harvest by Rod Colvin, which tells the story of an incredibly disturbing cult out of Nebraska, and some great fictional detective mysteries as well. Even tons from famous authors like Agatha Christie and Mary Higgins Clark. Every order comes with free shipping, even if your cart is packed. And if you don't like the books you purchased, you can return them, no questions asked, for the first 30 days. So head to the link below, pick up some books, and support the channel. On the 7th of June, 2000, Robbie was making his way home from a friend's house. The last time Robbie was seen, he was near his home around 6.30 p.m. in the Bellama neighborhood in South Santa Fe, New Mexico. He was only seven years old. It wouldn't be until 11.03, just over four or so hours later, that Robbie's mother, Evelyn, flagged down an officer in his cruiser to report Robbie missing. From that point forward, until the boy's next birthday on April 10th of 2001, everyone banded together to search for him. It began the day after he went missing. The Santa Fe New Mexican published a timeline of events starting with, quote, local, state, and federal authorities and dozens of volunteers calling the Bellama Drive area for the missing boy. The following day, they released a description of a car that many claimed to have seen around the area where Robbie went missing. It was said to be a turquoise or aquamarine Dodge Diplomat or Plymouth Reliant. On the 10th, though, a new report is given of a man who was said to be 5'10", around 140 pounds, 30 to 40 years old, with salt and pepper hair, riding a bike or walking. It's unclear if these two were separate sightings at different times or if the police believed the two incidents could be related and this kidnapping was carried out by two individuals. It's on this day that police also admit their search didn't begin until nine hours after Robbie was reported missing. They attribute this to a shift change and miscommunication in the department. Over the following months, many more steps were taken to find Robbie. On the 14th of June, the backyard of the Romero house was dug, but nothing was found. The police also questioned many more people in the neighborhood. Three days later, Robbie's case is featured on America's Most Wanted, and just a few days following that, the police searched the Ford Mustang that was at the Romero's home that had previously not been searched. Weeks and weeks passed with more vehicles being searched, landfills being combed over, and lakes being dragged, but nothing coming up. After rolling into the new year, a child's skull was discovered in California that police initially believed could have been Robbie, but it was determined to be that of a young girl who went missing in California. 
Finally, on the 10th of April, Robbie's birthday comes and goes with no new leads. This time, however, one suspect popped up. Ronnie Romero. It began with the initial investigation. From a 2009 article, quote, At the time, the Romero home was a hub of search activity. Everyone was out helping in the effort, but the detective noticed Ronnie slept late or stayed in his room by himself and didn't take an active role in search for his brother. Now, when I first read that, my initial thought was, I'm not sure how I would react in that situation either. I maybe would have shut down like Ronnie seems to have. But there were plenty of other strange instances that led police to call him the number one person of interest. Ronnie was the one who told police Robbie was walking to his friend's house to play Nintendo, but the young boy's parents never saw Robbie that night, meaning Ronnie was the last person to see him alive. He also told police that he'd taken Robbie to play ball in the park early on the 7th, the day Robbie went missing, but as it says in the article, taxi records and witnesses were able to disprove this. The night of the 6th, Ronnie was partying until early hours of the morning and slept most of the day on the 7th. Ronnie had been lined up to the police from the beginning. A month following Robbie's disappearance, Ronnie was interviewed again. Captain Gary Johnson spoke with the Santa Fe New Mexican and said in reference to the interview, quote, He was really interested in the different penalties for manslaughter. I had the statute book open and we were going over penalties together. I thought we were close to a confession. Unfortunately, that confession never came, at least to the police. Ronnie had a court appearance for an unrelated incident that same day, and when his lawyer heard he'd been speaking with police, he was told no longer to say anything. Something also worth noting is Ronnie failed three polygraph tests, and of course, take that with a dose of suspicion, as they can't hold up in court. Further marks against Ronnie was when he'd attempted to blame his then-girlfriend of killing Robbie, saying she'd confessed to him. He told police that she'd accidentally ran over him and hid Robbie's body in a dumpster. Of course, searches into this yielded nothing. The police also looked into Ronnie's girlfriend, and while they don't believe she did it, they have said they believe she was withholding vital information to keep Ronnie from being convicted. Finally... There was one final piece of the puzzle that left police more than 100% certain Ronnie had something to do with his brother's disappearance. June 17, 2000, a dispatcher received a call from a young woman who has never been named, saying Ronnie showed up to her house and just began confessing. Captain Gary Johnson said, Ronnie told her he hid him in a place we would never find him. He said, the police are way off. I hid him well. He even went on to state, we totally believe her. We believe her to this day. Following Robbie's disappearance, Ronnie had several more run-ins with police. Being described as a petty criminal, he was serving time in Santa Fe Jail in 2008, where he passed away following an overdose. For years following Robbie's initial disappearance, many leads would pop up, but never pan out. In September of 2002, the Albuquerque Journal ran an article about the remains that were discovered in northwestern New Mexico, but they were not those of Robbie. Nine years later, in 2011, a young man came forward saying he was Robbie Romero. Following a DNA test and the boy's mother coming forward, he was determined not to be Robbie. From everything I've read, it seems Ronnie, even though deceased, is still the number one suspect. 
Despite this, his mother denies the family had any involvement whatsoever and made claims that the police harassed her and the family from the day Robbie went missing. With that said, if you do have any information on this case, contact the Santa Fe Crime Stoppers at 505-955-5050. The morning of February 10th, 1990, was supposed to be like every other day of the year. Unfortunately for the residents of Las Cruces, that wasn't the case. That morning, the Las Cruces bowling alley was being sent to open soon. Stephanie Sinak, the manager, and her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa, and her daughter's friend, 13-year-old Amy, were all in the bowling alley preparing. Stephanie was in the back office while Melissa and Amy were out front getting ready for a day of supervising the bowling alley's daycare. The cook for the bowling alley, a woman named Ida Holguin, was in the kitchen when the gunman entered. The man had entered through an unlocked door, entered the kitchen, and then pulled a 22 caliber pistol, ordering her into Stephanie's office. When they arrived, Stephanie and Amy were already being held at gunpoint by another gunman. The two women and young girls were told to lie down on the ground while the gunman broke into the bowling alley safe, collecting between $4,000 to $5,000. Not long after this, the alley's mechanic, Steve Turan, shown up with the intention of dropping off his six-year-old Paula and his two-year-old Valerie at the alley's daycare because he was unable to find a babysitter. He made his way into the bowling alley, but upon seeing no one inside, he headed into Stephanie's office, only to come across the scene that had unfolded. Four women, Stephanie, Melissa, Amy, and Ida, all on the floor being held at gunpoint. The gunman ordered him and his two daughters to do the same. And then, they opened fire. Each person being held was shot multiple times at point-blank range. Four of them lost their lives in the bowling alley. Stephen, who was 24, Paula, his six-year-old daughter, and Amy Hauser, who was just 13 years old. The fourth life taken was that of Valerie, Stephen's two-year-old daughter, who was taken to the hospital following the police arriving at the scene, but passed away sometime later. This, of course, left Melissa, who was 12, her mother Stephanie, and the alley's cook, Ida, miraculously alive and able to tell their story. We can't continue before mentioning that it was Melissa who called the police. I can't begin to imagine how terrifying the situation was, and I believe it was her quick action that led to the story being as large and as well-spread as it is, so I commend her for that. And it's a great thing that she was able to make that call when she did. The gunman started a fire in the office before leaving, and the call was made to police not long after. Along with this, the fire was reported at 8.33 that morning. When police arrived, Melissa, Stephanie, and Ida were still alive. The three young women gave statements to the police, leading to this composite sketch of the two men who committed the shooting. The dimming headlight published these two sketches with the description of each man. These two suspects are wanted by the Las Cruces Police Department for questioning in reference to a robbery which occurred at the Las Cruces Bowl. The first man was said to be a Spanish male with a dark complexion, approximately 29 to 30 years of age, 5 foot 10 inches, 170 pounds. 
They also mention a 6-8 inch blue steel revolver and was seen traveling in a westerly direction from Spina and Amador. The other man was said to be an Hispanic male, approximately 45 to 50 years of age, 5 foot 6 inches in height, 135 to 140 pounds, medium build with a dark complexion, black hair combed back, and brown eyes. When the sketches were released, many police made note that the men described looked very familiar, as if they'd had numerous run-ins with the law. An article published February 12th, two days following the murders, said the police were looking into over 100 tips and information submitted by those looking into the case and what was available to them with other law enforcement agencies. Captain Fred Rubio set up 10 roadblocks following the shooting, but it resulted in no arrests. Along with this, police sent two of their officers to El Paso, Texas to cross-check information with their police force, fearing the men had already left New Mexico but there was nothing to indicate the men were there or ever have been. As a matter of fact, Captain Rubio also made mention that the men could have been local. He even alluded to them possibly being employees at the bowling alley at one point or knowing someone who worked there closely. He said, I have a gut feeling they were here prior to Saturday morning. They would have had to have had prior knowledge to the cash. We can honestly speculate this. I can guarantee you they knew where the money was. Border Patrol was even called in to help with the investigation, as police also theorized the men could have attempted to flee to Mexico. Now, 30 years later, the police unfortunately seem to be no closer to getting answers. The few survivors and the family of the survivors have continued to be outspoken about the importance of keeping this story alive. Anthony Turan, the man who lost Steve, Valerie, and Paula, spoke with KTSM 9 News and said he feels there is still hope for everyone involved. One of the largest reasons this case has seen so little development is because of the lack of DNA testing and collecting at the scene. Let me make it clear that I'm not faulting the police force or saying they weren't doing their job. Detective Amador Martinez made a valid point during a 2020 press conference noting that DNA was still very new and the New Mexico police hadn't been trained in how to handle it or collect it properly. With that said, it's been noted that this is still an open investigation. Police are taking tips and, as Detective Martinez put it, slowly chipping away and every step they take is a step forward. If you have any information on this case that you think can help or if you believe you know who the two men in this sketch could be, don't hesitate to contact the authorities. Police are asking for any information to be reported to the La Cruces Crime Stoppers at 575-526-8000. On February 2nd, 2009, a woman named Christine Ross was walking her dog in the West Mesa area when she stumbled upon a human bone, a femur to be specific. The area she was walking was set to be a housing development in 2006, with work being done to map out the area. But following the 2008 housing collapse, development was over before it could even begin. Residents in the area began to complain about the development leading to the Arroyo flooding with heavy rain not long after the work being abandoned, so a retaining wall was built to channel the stormwater in a retention pond. It just so happens that the pond was built right over the burial sites of 11 women. 
As three years came and went, the pond filled and drained year after year, slowly but surely exposing the horrible secrets that lie under the surface. This is what led to the first bone being discovered in 2009. Of course, following the report of human remains, the police began to look for the rest of the remains that connected to the femur that was found. As the search continued, though, it was clear they were in for much more than they'd initially believed. Albuquerque police are investigating a cache of human remains discovered in the West Mesa this week. The bones were first discovered earlier this week by a woman walking her dog. He, police spokesman John Walsh, described the bones as miscellaneous skeletal remains rather than complete skeletons, and said they have been turned over to the Office of the Medical Investigator to determine how old they are. There are dozens of missing persons cases being investigated in New Mexico, and cold case detectives are anxiously waiting results from OMI anthropologists. Eleven cold cases would see cracks beginning to form over the following years. The first set of remains to be identified was a woman named Victoria Chavez on the 10th of February. The final woman to be identified was Jamie Barella in January of 2010. All of the women identified were Victoria Chavez, Gina Michael Valdez, Cinnamon Elks, Julie Naito, Monica Candelaria, Veronica Romero, Doreen Marquez, Celania Edwards, Virginia Cloven, and Evelyn Salazar. A majority of the women were Hispanic and involved in drugs or sex work. One of the youngest girls, Solania Edwards, was reported to have run away from home in Lawton, Oklahoma. From very early on into the investigation, police stated they believed this was the work of a serial killer, and all the women were killed by the same man. Albuquerque police sent Thursday the bones from six bodies they uncovered in the desert of West Albuquerque were likely put there by one person, and they are building a list of suspects. In December of 2006, Lorenzo Montoya was killed after murdering Sharika Hill, a 19-year-old escort. While Lorenzo was trying to move her body, her boyfriend shot and killed him. While deceased, he's never been ruled out as a suspect. Next was a man named Joseph Blee. The first report of him being suspected to play a part in the crimes came in February 2009, just a week after the first bone was discovered. His ex-wife called police claiming he may have known something about the murders and that he dumped debris at the West Mesa at night regularly. Along with this, it would come out later that he'd had numerous rape charges on his record spanning from the 80s to 90s, some with girls as young as 13. In June 2009, the police conducted a search of his home, but found nothing of interest. Much later, in October of that same year, Joseph's house, as well as his prison cell, was searched. This time, they found women's underwear, as well as jewelry, in his possession. As of 2009, though, there have been no charges filed against him for any of the West Mesa cases. However, his past caught up to him when he was sentenced to 90 years in prison following a failed appeal for over a dozen cases of rape. He was 61 at the time of his conviction. Other men were suspected, Rod Irwin, a photographer who was eventually ruled out, and Fred Reynolds, a local pimp. The two police are focusing on, however, are Joseph and Lorenzo. Lorenzo specifically seems more plausible to me personally, considering he'd killed Sharika in 2006, just 
two years after the last woman went missing. Sharika also fit the average age of all the women. Of course, we don't know what the police do, so take my words with a grain of salt. If you do believe you have any information that can tie either of these men to the case, or something that will help police further the investigation, as this is still a very open case, please don't hesitate to report it. You can call the Albuquerque Police Department's 118th Street Task Force at 1-877-765-8273 or 505-768-2450. You can also call the Albuquerque Crime Stoppers at 505-843-7867. Hey everyone, uh, thanks a ton for taking some time out of your day to sit down and watch this video, or if you listened over on Anchor, where most of the audio for all my videos can be found, uh, thank you for listening over there as well. I want to take a quick second to say we have new merch in the Teespring store, the MDIA, Mr. Davis Investigation Agency. If you're interested in becoming a member or an agent, uh head over to that link in the description and check it out. You can also support the channel by becoming a member or a patron over on Patreon. Both will get you videos a day or two days in advance, depending on how I'm feeling. So if that sounds like something you want to do, it's only 99 cents a dollar a month. So if that sounds like something you want to do, get some videos early, support the channel all at the same time. That'd be awesome. Um, And thanks to everyone who is already doing that. Uh, finally, I just want to say thanks again for listening, taking some time out of your day for these cases, and uh, as always, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.